If you have your Bible, open it to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. Last week we talked about giving thanks to God as we continue our, our series through looking at prayer and what it means to be a people of prayer. And we, we've tried to, to look at specific prayers that have happened in Scripture in order to best kind of summarize how we ought to pray or to glean from it how people of Scripture prayed or how Scripture helps model prayer for us. And in last week's sermon, we, we noted that David gives thanks even amidst this terrible strife and difficulty that he finds himself as Doeg goes and kills those priests and their family. And David knows that he has occasioned their death. Still, he gives thanks to God. We talked about how it is that we can give thanks in all of the difficulties of life, how we are called upon to give thanks always and in everything, and how difficult a task that is, given the the discord and the strife and the angst of this world. We also mentioned ever so briefly that there was another aspect of this world, and especially here in the United States, that can cause us to stop giving thanks. And that is not the difficulties of the world, but the prosperity of the world. Frankly, this is a much greater problem for most of us. Our lives might be spotted with those great moments of difficulty and pain and strife, but most of us don't live our day-to-day lives there. Most of us live in prosperity that has been unknown in the world. And you might think, I am not a wealthy person. Friend, you are not a wealthy person compared to all of the other immensely wealthy people around you. You are immensely wealthy. Prosperity is yours whether you think you have it or not. And you are in danger by that prosperity of ceasing to give thanks to God for the good things that he has given to you. Last week we mentioned a passage from Deuteronomy. I want to read it this week. Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 through 17. As God gives a warning out to his people, God says this in Deuteronomy 8, 11, Lest take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and not keeping his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full, And have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. He says, there's going to be a temptation when you go into the land and my word starts to become true. You will be following me and I will make everything prosperous for you. Your herds and your flocks will increase. The grain will increase. All the silver and the gold will increase. Your houses will be secure. You will live in places unlike you have ever known before. And as you go in and you become prosperous, your heart will be lifted up and you will forget all of the good that I did for you. You'll forget that I was the one who took you up out of Egypt, that that's why you're not there anymore. You will forget that I was the one who kept you alive through the wilderness. I was the one who brought water forth on a dry and thirsty ground. I brought water from a rock. I kept serpents and scorpions from you. I gave you food where there was no food. I did all of this. I even gave you the land. You will forget about it and become puffed up in your own heart. This isn't just an Old Testament phenomenon. 
the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul records the same kind of sentiment. The Corinthians who had received the gift of the Spirit and received numerous and varied gifts of the Spirit, they were rich with the Spirit, began to brag and to rank themselves because of the kind of gifts they had. And Paul asks a very pertinent question in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That is, the the Corinthians knew very well that those gifts that they had, they weren't born with them. It was after the gospel was preached to them and the Spirit came upon them that they had these gifts. And they were using them, but they boasted in them like they were theirs. And Paul says, you know that you were given them. Why are you claiming and boasting and talking about like these things are yours as though you didn't receive them from God? In each case, God's people knew the truth of what they had received. God gave them the good gifts that they had used, but they had forgotten where those gifts had come from. In order to be thankful, as we've gone through all of the prayers that we've looked at, in order to be thankful, in order to have good and righteous prayer before God, the kind of prayer that God adores, you need to know who God is. Let us remember who God is and what he has done. Two verses in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms, are going to help kind of frame what we're going to do today. Psalm 86, verse 10, For you are great and do wondrous things, you alone are God. Said a little bit more succinctly in Psalm 119, 68, You are good and you do good. God is good and he does good. Fred Sanders, who is a theologian today, commenting on Thomas Manton's thoughts on that particular verse, Thomas Manton being a Puritan, Fred Sanders writes, we are always prone to ingratitude. That's our problem. He says, we are always prone to ingratitude. But Manton was especially concerned that we should cultivate gratitude toward God for who he is. The only way to do that is to dwell on the subject. And here he quotes Manton. It is the fruit of deep and ponderous meditation Glances never warm the heart. It is our serious and deliberate thoughts which affect us. It is only by seriously and deliberately sitting down, taking time to think through who God is and what he does that you will ever truly be, gra- be living a life of gratitude and thanks toward God. There's always going to be distractions. Notice what that verse says. It says, you are good and do good. It doesn't say you are good because you do good. God isn't good because he does good. God isn't good when he does good. But God is good and he does good. So if we are to be reminded of these things, if we are to know who God is in order to be thankful, in order to pray rightly, I think we need a time to sit down and talk about who God is. And there is no passage in scripture that I can think of that comes anywhere close to describing both who God is and what he has done. Better than Revelation 4 and 5. Now, I know at first I only said Revelation 4 and now I'm tacking on Revelation 5 and you're thinking we don't have time for all that and we don't have time for all that. So you're going to have to do some meditation on your own. As a matter of fact, the first point is who God is and we will get to what God has done under who God is. I have been warned that I have not given you enough space for notes in there. So I am telling you beforehand, you're going to need to divide that space up into 12 separate sections because there are 12 separate things that describe how great God is here. I'm looking at you. So you need to, you need to break those things 
hands up so you know that 12 things are coming at you. So we're going to talk about who God is. Let us read the book of Revelation, chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of our God. Let us look at who God is from this passage. First, I want to say something very clear about the book of Revelation. We're not going to get far into the book of Revelation before we meet this particular problem, and I want to address it before we get any further. This is John's vision, but we need to realize that the words he records here are not the precise impact of the vision he saw. He is not describing his vision. He is giving a metaphor for what he saw. It is most likely that what John saw is inescapably difficult to make human language fit. And so he prescribes all of it in terms of metaphors. Because some of these things don't make a lick of sense when you think of them literally. Okay? So John says, I had a vision and this is what I saw. He's giving metaphors because what he likely saw, you couldn't put into human words. So almost everything in here is metaphorical. Almost everything. As a matter of fact, we have to understand it that way because this might be a shocker to you. But as it's coming up in chapter 5, Jesus isn't actually a lamb. right? He's not actually a lion. He's not actually a root. He is a man, although he is not depicted in here as a man at any point in time in chapter 5. So we need to understand that while John is talking about what he is seeing, what he is describing is not literally what he is seeing, but it's a metaphor for what he sees but can't actually describe. And the metaphors are there to help us understand who this God truly is, who this one seated on the throne. You'll notice that John, by the way, never describes him as God. John never uses that word in chapter 4. The elders, when they are praising him at the end in verse 11, says, Our Lord and God. But John continually simply describes him as the one seated on the throne. So, 
I want to point simply 12 things. These are going to come fairly rapid fire because I realize that we don't have all day. Soon, the air conditioning won't keep up and we're going to have, I'm going to faint, so we're going to get through these before we do that. So, first, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Amazingly, the first thing that John sees isn't God, but it is the throne. He looks up and he says, I saw a throne and it stood in heaven. He sees a throne and he sees one sitting on the throne. The word throne is used not only through here, all the way through the book of Revelation, 40 times that word is used. And three-fourths of every use of the word of throne occurs in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. It is a theme, if not the theme, of the book of Revelation. If you want to know what Revelation is about, Revelation is about that no matter what is going on in the world, God is still on his throne. He is still sovereign over everything. He is sovereign over all things. He does not have a limit in his power or his might or his authority. He sits in his throne in heaven and he looks down upon the rest of earth. No matter how good or bad the world might seem, God is in control. You are not in control. Evil is not in control. Capitalism is not in control. Socialism is not in control. The next Supreme Court justice who gets appointed after Kennedy retires is not in control. Neither is the President of the United States. He controls nothing. Congress is not in control. The man ain't in control. There is no one in control but God. Secondly, God is beautiful. God is beautiful. God is not just sovereign, which talks about his never-ending authority, his reign and his power to reign, but he is beautiful. Notice how much different that is than how almost anyone else who has a tremendous amount of power today is pictured. When people have power, what do we say? Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And John says we have absolute power here, and we have something that is immensely beautiful. He uses this picture of light going through carnelian and jasper, these, these stones. You might pick another picture, but gemstones were, were used often in the ancient Near East or in the New Testament times or in other literature to describe something that's beautiful. They wouldn't have had much more beautiful than a, a beautiful stone that comes out and it refracts the light everywhere. If you've ever seen a large, beautiful diamond, you know what it is to see something that is beautiful. And he says, this is the very picture of God. It is light radiating outward, beautiful light that is displayed for all to see. He is radiant and he is glorious. He is like the most beautiful of all of the gemstones. This is a, a depiction of God which makes him seem like he is something so beautiful you couldn't take your eyes off of it. Have you ever had something like that? That you look at it once and, and it captivates you and your eyes simply won't leave it. it. It fixates on what you see. That is the picture that John is giving us of God here. God is beautiful. There are no blemishes in God. There are no errors in God. There is nothing in him that needs fixing. There is nothing that could be better. He is the picture of beauty. He is the picture of desire for what Christians know. And third, he is merciful. In the very same breath that he talks about his beauty, he also implies his mercy. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. That rainbow, as we've been reading through Genesis in our community groups, ought to spark in your head the idea of a rainbow that God places as a sign of his mercy and his grace 
over the generations of Noah and those that come after him. He floods the world because man's heart is only wicked and evil all the time. And so what does he do? He floods the world, but then afterwards he says, now I will never do that again. I will always be tempered by mercy. And you will know that because there will be a rainbow. Even around God's throne, around all of his authority. Again, notice the impact that that authority has as John describes what kind of authority that is. It is authority that which is tempered. It is tacked down by mercy. And all of the judgments that God is going to give and all of the grace that God is giving, everything is tempered by mercy. It is part of the very nature of who he is. Fourth, God is beneficent. He is good. He is kind. We have 24 elders here. And again, the numbers are going to become difficult for us. We like to think of numbers as being exact things. These numbers are not actual numbers. They are actual numbers, but they're symbolic. 24 is symbolic of 12 and 12. The 12 probably tribes of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament. Of course, we know that there weren't exactly 12 tribes in the Old Testament. That counting was kind of done generally, but there are issues there and likely not 12 apostles in the New Testament. We know that because there were 11 after Judas killed himself. They replaced him and then they added more apostles to this. There are more than 12 apostles, but the number amounts to this idea of perfection, what God has done in the old and what God has done in the new. And these elders likely symbolizing all of those combined sit on thrones. You'll notice he doesn't, God doesn't have them kneeling before him. They, they willingly do that, but God is graciously providing them thrones. People who are sovereign don't do this. People who are sovereign make sure that they pull every ounce of glory they can out of their subordinates, but not God. God is gracious in his dealings with people. God is gracious and kind with his people and he gives them thrones. And not only does he give them thrones, but he gives them white garments and golden crowns. God is kind to all. And throughout the book of Revelation, it is always held out to the saints who read the book of Revelation that if you persevere, this is what you get as well. These are not people who seem to be special, who seem to be set aside as though there's only 12 of them and there's only 12 apostles and 12 of the tribes of the Old Testament, only 12 people who get to sit here. The idea is that these represent you, friend. You too can win a white garment and have a crown on your head when you persevere because God is kind to all who call upon his name. Fifth, God is mighty. Sound erupts from the throne, flashes of lightnings, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In today's world, this doesn't impact us much. Well, thunder is just one more of many loud noises. Our new dog hates loud noises. Trailer goes down the road, boom, 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 and she freaks out about it. She hates the vacuum cleaner. She hates the lawnmower. She hates the weed whacker. These are all incredibly loud things, but we don't bat an eye at those things. We know what it's like to get on a jet. We know what it's like to hear the kid next door play his bass really, really loud in the car, which could never possibly sound good. We know what that is like. But imagine that you're somebody in the ancient world. They don't have sounds like that. Even today, when we have sounds like that, if you've ever been close to a lightning strike, you know what that sound is like. 
The sound of that thunderclap resonates with authority and power, and it is something to not be messed with, but something to fear. And the sound that is coming out of God's throne indicates that he is mighty. He is mighty. Imagine how that must have been for people in the ancient Near East to, to hear that sound, that loud of a sound. What was the loudest sound that they might have heard? Sheep bleeding? A hammer hitting the nail on a head? A trumpet blowing might be the max, right? We get that at football games. But God does not sound like that. God sounds like thunder. He is mighty. Sixth, he is a conqueror. Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass. The sea is an interesting feature here. It most likely represents something that we wouldn't expect to find in heaven. It represents evil. Israel never much had a navy, even though they were on the coast. The sea is always pictured as chaotic, malevolent, or evil. It, it doesn't sit beneath you like the ground does. You put your feet on ground and, and the feet are stable, but the sea, the sea is never stable. The sea can erupt in a second. This is terrifying about earthquakes, but on a sea, there's nothing but earthquakes. Interestingly, even here in the book of Revelation, the sea seems to indicate something evil. In Revelation 13:1, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea. That is, the sea was the home of the beast. That's where it belonged. And it's no longer in its home, but it's making its presence known even on land. That it belongs in the sea where evil was, but now it has come up. In Revelation 15, 2, some two chapters later, John says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. What makes it symbolic that they are conquering over them is that they are able to stand by the sea and know that they are safe. They have conquered over him. Listen to this passage from Luke chapter 8. One day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went to him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. No, they were afraid. Not before the calm. They were afraid after the calm. They were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Who is this that can command chaos and bring it to order? Who is this who with a word quells what is evil. When the sea of glass of crystal is underneath God's throne, it is symbolically under him. It is under his control. While the sea rages, while the sea brings forth evil, God is still ultimately in control. Nothing comes up out of the sea that God does not allow. He is the conqueror over all of it. As a matter of fact, this is why in the last bit of the book of Revelation, when it talks about the new city of Jerusalem coming down four square. He says, the sea is no more. It's not because God doesn't want you to go boating. It is because the sea represents evil and it's now gone. God is a conqueror over that. Seventh, he is a master. He is the master. 
There are four beasts represented here. One like an ox, one like a lion, one with the face of a man, and the other like an eagle. While this could mean a number of different things, and of course symbolism opens itself up to that, it's likely that this simply represents creation. It just represents all of creation. Every bit of creation stands around and worships God. He is not just the creator, but what is more, creation serves God. All of creation serves God. None of it is wasted. None of it is outside of his control. All of it turns toward him and serves him. In Psalm 148, 1 through 5, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. God has created them and therefore they come and they praise him. That is established here because each of these different creatures turns and worships and sings that song to God. Eighth, God is all-seeing. They are filled with eyes. Doesn't make any sense. They're full of eyes all around and within. What's the good of having eyes within? God sees everything. These are not simply the eyes of the creatures, but they symbolize the eyes of God. He sees everything. He doesn't just see what happens around. He doesn't just see as we see. We see what happens on the outside. He doesn't just have perfect vision that way, but he also sees what is within these creatures. You cannot hide the thoughts that you have from God. You cannot hide the evil intentions of your heart, even if you don't act on them, from God. You cannot hide yourself from God. Psalm 139, 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven... You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you? What can see in total, total darkness? What has eyes that can see not in partial darkness? but in complete and utter darkness. Who can see you then? No cat, no owl, no night creature will ever be able to see you, but he says, God sees me. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as a light with you. There is no darkness for God. There is nothing that can keep him from seeing you. He is all seeing. Ninth, he is holy. They cry out with the same same song that the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6 sang out with holy, holy, holy. He is supremely holy. It's not just like the king of kings, but it is holy of the holies of the holy. He is the holiest. He is supremely holy. And here, while that makes him worthy, it means something along the lines of he is utterly and totally unique. You are not unique. You're not there are a million people just like you in the world. Don't let the world tell you you're unique because you're not. As a matter of fact, there are people sitting around you who are just like you. And you might not like that comparison, but nevertheless, it's true. Some of you actually are flattered by that and good for you. But the rest of you are not flattered by that and it doesn't matter. You are not unique. You are just like everybody else, but God is utterly unique. There is none like him. 
Exodus 15:11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. There is no one like our God. He is holy, holy, holy. He is 10th everlasting. He is the one who always was, who always is, and always will be to come. He is life in and of himself, and of him there is no end. Many years ago, there was a book written in response, kind of, to C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe called The Golden Compass. And in that, people rebel against this God and try to kill him. Christians find this utterly astounding because it's the stupidest thing we've ever heard. You can't kill a God who is life in and of himself. You can't stop God from being God. Your existence is dependent upon God, so when you try to kill God, God just snuffs you out before you get the chance, and you wouldn't be able to do it anyways. I don't even know how an author could think that they offer an understanding of God when that God can die. Psalm 2.1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? God is from everlasting to everlasting. He is, and he was, and he is to come. He is the ever-existent God. Eleventh, he is worthy. Amazingly, even though God has given them their crowns, they give them right back to him. They hear the crying out of, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and they toss their crowns back to him. Friend, whatever you may think of God, you should be rest assured that he is worthy of everything that you have to offer him. And what's more, you are not worthy of yourself. You're not. You are wasting yourself by giving yourself to yourself. The only one who is worthy of your life, of your sacrifices, of your offerings, the only one who is worthy of all of your obedience, the only one who is worthy of all of your affection is not you, it's not your spouse, it's not your kids, it's not your church, it's no one in your life. It is God Almighty alone. He is worthy. Twelfth, he is central. And all of this we can easily, by looking at the individual pictures, lose the sight of what John is telling us. This is a target. And there are rings going out from the target. They are around the throne. The 24 elders go around the throne and the four go around the throne. They are all around the throne. This looks like a giant weight placed inside of a trampoline. God is the center of all things. All things funnel down toward God. He is the center and the pinnacle and the height and the exact focus of everything, not only within the book of Revelation, but as John would picture it here, of all of creation. Put a bowling ball in the center of a trampoline and watch everything that happens. All of it will funnel down to the center. God is the center of everything. Anselm, that great 11th century theologian was right, God is that of which no greater can be conceived. God is greater, grander, more powerful, more glorious than my words could ever communicate to you. This is a God who is unlike any other God. He is a God who is glorious in who he is. You will notice, other than some implications, John has not said anything about what this God does. He has simply described who this God is. And he hasn't described him in his form. He hasn't described him as a man. He hasn't described him as anything but the things that come out from him and the things that he surrounds himself with. Who God is, but then secondly, 
what God has done. Let us read Revelation chapter 5. And I know you're thinking, oh no, we're only halfway through. We'll go a little bit quicker through this. Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. We have seen who God is. Now we get to behold what God has done. He begins by seeing a scroll. It is written on the inside and the outside, and it's sealed with seven seals. That scroll has been pictured by people as many different things. It's been pictured as the Old Testament. It's been pictured as the future judgments, which are about to come. It's been pictured as judgment and redemption. It's been pictured as the Lamb's Book of Life, which he opens then at the end. What it is, most likely, given Greco-Roman culture, is a will and testament. It is all of the promises that God made to Abram, all of the promises that God made to Adam, all the promises that God has ever made to his people. It is rolled up and it is sealed, and it is an inheritance that is going to be passed down, which explains quite well why it was that John starts weeping when no one is found worthy to open it. Absolutely no one. No saint in heaven, no person in Sheol, no man or woman walking the earth, none of the angels in heaven, no one is found worthy to open the scroll. John is not weeping here solely because he doesn't get to tell what the future holds. That's not John's problem. This is not the tears of somebody who doesn't get what he wants, like a kid being told no to a candy bar. John is weeping because all of the good promises of God are for nothing, because no one in humanity is able to go and enact the will of God. It is precisely because no one is holy that the will of God cannot come true. All those promises can't come true because no one is actually worthy of inheriting the promises that God has given. When John looks at this, he realizes there is no redemption for mankind. There's no hope for John or for his people. They are in their sins and within the wrath of an almighty God, which given what he just saw must have been horribly frightening to him. And so John sees in the unworthiness of all who are to open the scroll the victory of evil, of Satan, of chaos, and of the wicked. 
they all win. But the angel exclaims to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. This prophesied lion from Genesis 49, the prophesied root from what Pastor Richard read this morning from Isaiah 11.10, this prophesied Messiah who is to come has actually conquered over all of this. He has conquered by overcoming the failures of his people. They have failed, but Jesus did not. He has overcome by looking at the failures that plagued Adam and his progeny, the sin that was in their lives, and not falling plagued to it. He has overcome the devil and his tricks and his lies. He did not fall for them as Adam did and Eve did. He did not fall for them as the people of Israel did. He did not fall for them in any way, shape, or form. But he entrusted himself to the word of God. He has overcome sin and temptation. He knew what it was to be tempted, and yet he was able to faithfully walk through it. He has overcome even death himself. As it says, John looks up, and what does he see? Who is this mighty one who has conquered? Does he see a lamb? Does he see a king? Does he see a mighty warrior? No, he sees a lamb. That's weak. And what's worse, it's a lamb who was slain. Again, the picture doesn't really work. A lamb standing, slain. Of course, it works for us, because we know exactly what it means. Christ didn't conquer by coming as a warrior. Christ didn't conquer by coming as a king. Christ came and conquered by being a lamb, by doing what God had called him to do. Listen, everyone else had failed and realized how they failed. God asked them to give him their lives and they were unwilling to do it. And so they sinned before him. He sent his son and asked him to give him his death. Jesus was obedient to that. And therefore, he is worthy. He is worthy to have the same spirit of God. Notice the seven eyes of the spirit. Again, the number seven doesn't mean that there are seven actual spirits. The number seven is not a counting number here. The number seven is a different way for John to talk about perfection. The spirit of perfection flows not only from the Father in chapter 4, but also from Jesus Christ, his Son, in chapter 5. And what has he done to make himself worthy? He has been slain. Obedient to the very will of God, even to death. He allowed himself to be killed by the people who rebelled against him as their very maker and in doing so submitted himself even to the point of death on a cross to the very will of God. Something that we couldn't do. But secondly, it wasn't just that he let himself be killed, but that his blood is effective. He ransomed people. This is the picture of buying people with his own blood. His blood was the payment for the purchasing of people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. His precious blood was enough to purchase a kingdom for his God. And notice it's from everywhere. It's every tribe and tongue and nation and language. Not of all people without exception, Revelation, New Testament, never holds out the hope that there will be a universalism. But all people without distinction. There is no race that has an upper hand. There is no nation that has an upper hand. You are not special because you are white. You are not special because you are an American. You are not special because you are in a Baptist church. I think you are, but not to God. 
You are not special in any way, shape, or form. The only reason why anyone is ever saved is because Jesus Christ's blood has been spilt. There is no accomplishment that you can put forward to God. None of that matters. God saves all without distinction who call upon his name. He has been slain and he ransomed and he made a kingdom. And priests. Listen, this week of all weeks, we are right to think back on the blood that has been spilled in order to purchase for us the freedoms that we get to exercise here. We are doing something that people in China cannot do, that native Chinese can't do. They can't gather, especially in this large of a group, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to proclaim him as King and Lord. They would be imprisoned very quickly for that, and we should not ever think and not thank God for the privileges that we have. But let's be very, very clear. This, friends, is not our home. And this, friends, is not our kingdom. And all of the blood of every patriotic martyr who ever lived isn't worth a drop of the blood of Christ. And the kingdom that they built, as nice as it is, isn't even worth comparing to the kingdom of Christ. Do not leave here worshiping Christ today, singing his praises, and then go worship America on Wednesday. That cannot happen. You live in America. You are a citizen of heaven. Christ is your king. This is not our home. Christ has purchased for God and for himself a kingdom. He's purchased people that he might populate in his kingdom. And those are not just people, they are priests. This isn't a secular kingdom. This is a religious kingdom where everyone offers themselves in service to the king. That's why they're called priests here. It's not because they are going to be mediators between God and the rest of the world. That's not why he's made you a priest. In this life, that is. But in the lives to come, you will still be priests to God because you will sacrifice. You will offer up yourselves in service to God alone. After we get through all of that, all of a sudden, a brand new circle of things appears. All of a sudden, angels, so many that we can't even begin to count them, appear. And they begin to proclaim things that sound like Philippians 2, 9-11, and Isaiah 45, 22-25, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It doesn't matter where they are, in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, on the mountains, in the caves, it doesn't matter where they are, they will admit that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the one who is worthy of honor and glory and power and blessing and wealth and riches forever and ever. Amen. Because of what he has done. It is outstanding that the lamb walks up to the throne, takes the scroll out of the hand of God, and the elders and the beasts who are there and only there to worship God stop worshiping the one on the throne and turn to sing a new song of worship to the Lamb. This is one of the strongest passages that implies that John knows very well what he means when he talks about Jesus Christ being God. God is the only one who receives. Go back and read, if you want to, this week, that Isaiah 45 passage. Listen to how Isaiah talks about there being one God. There is only one God. He will give his glory to no other. There is one God who will show himself in salvation, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is God. And then all of a sudden, what do we get? We get a person, a man, 
seated on a throne, and we get a lamb, and they say, every tongue will confess that they are both worthy. Both the one who's seated on the throne and the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Jesus has been obedient. What he did was what we could not do. He has been obedient where we have failed. He has given himself for us. He has provided us with all that we need and more than that. He has done what none of us could do in giving us salvation where we had failed. Christ came in, took the wrath of God and provided us with the inheritance. As that seal is broken, as the inheritance is opened, as God's promises are let forth, they are only let forth because Jesus Christ has done what he did. He is worthy because he is good and he has done good of all your affection, your praise, and certainly every ounce of thanks that you have. So we're coming to the Lord's table. And we're reminded that this is not just a meal, but it is what some call the Eucharist, which is just thanksgiving. We have come to this table to give thanks, not to crunch our eyes together and to think about all the bad things we did and to think about Jesus on the cross. It is a meal of thanksgiving. Because Christ is on that cross, because Christ has done what he has done, you do not anymore face the penalty of your sins. Because of what Christ has done, you are freed from that because of what Christ has done. You gain an inheritance that was never yours. And so we come today to give thanks for a God who is good and a God who has done good. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful and we are reminded of how good you are today. Let us always be reminded of that. Let this vision of John's be sealed on our souls. That when tempted with prosperity, to think that we have made these things by our hands, to think that we are good, that we have done these things ourselves, Let us be reminded of this vision to know that we have nothing. We have nothing but weeping outside of Jesus Christ, our Lord. When tempted to despair, let us remember that Jesus Christ has overcome and therefore we too will overcome. And there will be a time of weeping no more in all things and at every time. Let us be those who give thanks to the Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.